Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series. I am Amy Zelmer, founder of FacesofTBI.com and your host. Today, I will be talking with Dr. Amanda Lopez about community and long-term resources for survivors. Today's episode is brought to you by Midwest Functional Neurology, a Minneapolis-based clinic staffed by caring and progressive team of functional neurologists who are experienced in treating post-concussion syndrome, chronic pain, dizziness, whiplash, and migraines. They are the concussion doctors you can trust for comprehensive brain health in the Midwest. They have greatly helped me and many others, and you can find them online at mnfunctionalneurology.com. Hello, everyone. I am Amy Zalmer, and you are listening to Faces of TBI, a podcast series for survivors by survivors, raising awareness about traumatic brain injury, one podcast at a time. For those of you who might not know who I am, I am a TBI survivor from a fall on the ice in February of 2014. I'm a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, and the Good Men Project, and I volunteer on the Brain Injury Association of America's Advisory Council, and I recently released my second book, Embracing the Journey, Moving Forward After Brain Injury, which you can find on Amazon. Today, my guest is Dr. Amanda Lopez, and Amanda is a licensed clinical psychologist at Origami Brain Injury Rehabilitation Center. She graduated from the University of Detroit Mercy in 2011 with a doctorate in clinical psychology. She is a CPI certified instructor for nonviolent crisis intervention. At Origami, Dr. Lopez provides individual and family therapy to clients and caregivers. She also serves as a co-facilitator for group therapy targeted at brain injury education, as well as ongoing support for transitioning back into the community and the workforce. Origami Brain Injury Rehabilitation Center is a nonprofit organization located in Lansing, Michigan. Origami provides comprehensive rehabilitation care for survivors of brain injuries and their families. Through their compassionate and innovative service, Origami creates opportunities and transforms lives. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lopez. I am so thrilled to have you here today. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm really excited to talk about this subject. I, you know, I think finding support and resources after your brain injury is so important. And, you know, unfortunately, so many people don't get the resources they need early enough. And so I'm, I'm really happy to have you here and talk about this today. And first, I'd love to start with you just giving us a little glimpse into how you came to work in the brain injury community. Um, What brought you to the world of TBI? Yeah, well, before coming to Origami, I was working with individuals with autism spectrum disorder. So in a different realm, but I have always been interested in how the brain works Mm -hmm. and how that affects behaviors and supporting people through very challenging circumstances. And as we know, with brain injury, it's a life-changing experience for the client, their family, their friends. So I've really connected 
to the clients and what they're going through, and I love working with the families. Um, it's it's challenging uh, what they're going through, and it's nice to yeah. have that support and feel like there's somebody there that understands and is is going to help them through it. Absolutely. So, you know, when at Origami, you know, you guys have this amazing facility where you have inpatient as well as outpatient, and you also have some long-term um, patients as well. Um, but what, what, I'm trying to think how to word this question, where I guess <laughs> in the process, um, do you start your patients in a support group? Well, it really depends on a few different factors. Um, you know, how much support they have currently, whether they're in our inpatient neuro rehab program, if they've moved to our um, our um, semi-independent living, more independent apartments with a little bit more limited support, or if they're in our outpatient program. So we have different levels of support and resources at each level that they're at. Um, I think depending on the family and the caregiver support that they have outside of origami, um, how intense and severe the injuries were that they sustained, and what their current goals are. Um, it can really be as soon as they come to origami that we are filling their schedule with um, as many therapies and support groups and information as they're able to take on. Um, we want to match that with where they're at and, and what they're interested in learning and what they're capable of taking on at that time. But um, we have it all the way from, as you mentioned, inpatient through outpatient. And even when they're completed, um, when they've completed their individual psychology sessions or speech and language or occupational therapy, they may still continue a couple of times a month coming into a support group. And that's more um, informal social supports, um, engaging with those that have gone through a brain injury, and they can really connect with other people that are going through very similar experiences. So it can be as, um, you know, frequent or infrequent as what they need, um, depending on where they're at in their recovery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something that comes up very often in my group is therapy. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of us, have PTSD that goes with our injury, you know, depending how it happened. You know, if you were in a car accident, you might be terrified to get back in a car or, you know, for me, I slipped on the ice. So every time it gets a little icy out it, you know, I kind of get a little on edge. Um, yeah. And, you know, therapy, counseling, whatever you want to call it, it, it you know, it kind of has like this negative connotation to some people mm-hmm. like, you know, you only go to them if you're crazy. So the doctor's telling me to go to a therapist. He must think I'm crazy. And I kind of want right. to, like, dispel that myth, right? I um, do, too. <laughs> <laughs> so how how would you – I'll turn it over to you, but how, how best would you kind of, like, explain – I mean, I loved my therapist. I found a great therapist right mm-hmm. off the bat. Um, but yeah. not everybody does, right? And you right. absolutely have the right to – shop around, so to speak, and and find one that you connect with. Um, So if you can kind of dive into those things, that would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your point about you're not going to connect with everybody is 
exactly right. You have to feel comfortable with that person. You're going to go into very sensitive topics and kind of divulge some very private things about what you're going through and how you're feeling. And first and foremost, you have to feel comfortable with that person if you're going to make any gains. And that's ultimately the goal of going to see somebody. So that would be the the very first thing is making sure that you feel comfortable with that person. If not, it's okay to let them know or, you know, to, to look around for somebody else or ask for another recommendation. And, you know, if you have any ideas about what else you might be looking for instead of that, that can help to get a, maybe a more appropriate referral for somebody. Um, I I would really love to dispel those myths too because there's a lot of value in talking with somebody about what you're going through. Um, it's not necessarily just talk therapy. I know that that's a huge component that can be really helpful in just having somebody to listen and support you and encourage you and be there with you um, kind of each step of the way through that rehabilitation. But therapy can also be skill building where, um, you know, cognitive changes that happen as a result of that brain injury, um, you might have trouble focusing or remembering or planning or staying organized. Um, There can be things in your environment that you could do differently that you just might not be aware of or, you might not know if you're doing everything the way that you should. And so kind of problem solving with somebody else to see what else can I do in my environment to make me more successful, um, to reduce those demands and that input and um, have visual reminders and prompts already in place will make daily life a lot easier. Um, But then also for the emotional changes, we often see a lot of anxiety and depression, and it's much more common than what people believe. You know, I don't know how many times I've had people come into my office and they think they might be that first one that I've ever talked to that's, mm-hmm. you know, experiencing some sadness or maybe passive suicidal thoughts or like you mentioned PTSD that they don't know why, you know, they hear a similar noise or they see a bus if that was involved in the accident and these these maybe minor or major triggers and they're having a really intense reaction to it and yeah. It can be really debilitating, you know, where, you know, I've had clients say it took me 20 minutes to cross the street. I kept venturing out into the road and I would take a step Aww. or two and then I would turn back. And, um, you know, I don't want people to be going through that alone when there, there are tools and skills that we can help to get them slowly back into their normal life. Um you know, so, and I think, un- unfortunately, there are a lot of doctors who, you know, basically say PTSD doesn't exist or, you know, this can't be from your concussion. Um, and, you know, they're really doing harm opposed to helping. And, you know, how how does one... Who, maybe someone who's listening who's had that exact experience, how does one kind of get past that and and get help that they need? I know, and that can be really hard because the very thing that you went to um, uh, reached out to somebody for help. Right. Psychologist or the clinician or the therapist that was supposed to be the one that was going to help you to get that kind of a negative reaction can be off-putting, you know, you want to avoid going back to see somebody like that. So I would really encourage them to, to try it again because you will 
find someone who understands what you're going through and listens to what your concerns are and wants to help. And we know that even those head injuries that might fall into this mild category, whatever that means, they might interrupt somebody's life and cause more difficulties than what it might seem like on paper. So I think finding somebody that's um, open-minded and really listens to that client and really wants to help will hear you and help you to address those concerns. So I would say just try it again and see if you can make it work with a new therapist or a new psychologist. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, they're not all created equal, and, I, and, and everyone has their own style and their own approach. But um, if you still have those valid concerns and, and you're still really having a hard time getting things back in order, um, see if you are willing to try and meet with somebody else again. Yeah. And, you know, that's really important for people to understand is, you know, you do have the right to find a different therapist or a different doctor. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I I get it that that insurance can be complicated, but you do have the ability to find a different person if you don't like the one you're currently with. And I think, you know, I know looking back when I was, in the beginning of my brain injury, it didn't even like, I just kept going to my same doctor. I mean, he wasn't hurting me, but he wasn't helping me. Right. Like we were just kind of in this plateau and it never even occurred to me to like, go try to find someone else who might help me. Um, It just simply didn't occur to me. And so I like to really make that point that, you know, if you're not, if you don't feel like you're getting anywhere with your doctor, um, you know, find a new one. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yep, absolutely. And and that's part of that that difficulty is sometimes, you know, the survivor feels like they are advocating for themselves more than what the doctors and the physicians are. Um and we we hope that everyone's as responsive and, you know, um willing to help and hearing the the client's concerns. Um and sometimes you do step into that advocacy role for yourself if you have um, caregivers that can do that for you and to research who else might mm-hmm. be out there that could meet with you. Sometimes you don't think of it and you think, well, they told me I should be okay, so I guess I'll keep trying it on my own and I'll just see how I how it goes. Um, sometimes that may work and sometimes it might not. So, and And it also depends. We might not pick up everything and I've, I really value everybody else that I work with because there might be a visual component or a balance issue or, yeah. um, you know, a, a speech or communication, not necessarily verbal, but it could be just the way that they're organizing that information and able to, you know, say something back to me. Um, there are so many other pieces that I might not pick up on that is a piece of the puzzle, though, that helps to have all all the pieces there of what they need in their care. So I value the input from everybody else on the team if if they do have a team together. And so sometimes that can be helpful. It's looking for a an interdisciplinary treatment team. Um, you know, if if there's one in your area that you, they can look at it more holistically of you know all the different components of that head injury and what it affected. 
um, just to make sure that everything is being addressed. And what about support groups? So, again, you know, every support group is a little bit different. Um, I visited many of them as I've traveled, and, um, you know, some are much more um, for people who are newer to their injury, and Mm -hmm. some are more of a social um, group, like they do activities and such. Um, Right. You know, how do you suggest someone find the right support group? Because that can be challenging, too. You don't even always know that, that they exist. Exactly. And you might not also know the right questions to ask. You don't know necessarily what you're looking for either. Um, you know, to, to compare yourself to others going through that that rehabilitation and that journey is, well, where am I at and, and what other individuals might be a, a good match for me. So, um, you know, looking at national brain injury organizations like the Brain Injury Association of America, um, they have a tool to find more local resources in your area. You can click on your state, and it brings up those that are closest to you. So we have a couple in Michigan and and more specifically around the Lansing area um, to, to try them out. You know, anyone is welcome. They can see what style they like. Some of them have a social hour and then an informational piece. Um, Some are more structured and others are more open-ended and laid back. Um, There's a lot of different pieces that somebody can get out of a a support group. Um, One of the best things you could do is is talk to the group facilitators or the organizers of those support groups to find out who it's targeted for. Um, They should have a goal in mind as to who the best um, audience is for that support group and what they're hoping that those Um, participants get out of that group um, and to kind of give them a feel of what the culture is like you know is this a group that's been going on for a long time and they're a very tight close-knit group and sometimes that can be helpful because they can welcome you in and really embrace you and sometimes you may feel like oh this is a little bit too close and I don't feel like I I belong here Um, others might be a drop-in so that there are certain topics that they will be covering for the next couple of months and if that's of interest you, you can attend those, um, and then maybe skip the next part. So finding out a little bit more about the structure and how it's organized and kind of the goals of that support group would be helpful to find out kind of on paper what if that would be a good match for you. Um, mm-hmm. But the support group can really offer something that even an individual treatment I may not be able to offer. You know, there's there's a bond, there's a connection, there's right. people that have gone through that, not the exact same experience, but something very similar. And sometimes they don't even have to explain it. You know, people just start nodding their heads and they know, <laughs> okay, I'm in the right place. I feel that you understand me and I, I don't need to, you know, keep talking with, you know, blank looks on their faces. Um, often people talk about it being an invisible injury because, family and friends and other caregivers, they just may not fully understand what they're going through. And there's just a great bond between those in the support group. And what about someone who is interested in starting a support group? You know, maybe they're listening and they live in an area where there isn't one. Maybe they're, maybe they're, um, you know, further away from a larger city because obviously the larger cities are more likely to have groups established. Um, 
You know, do you have any recommendations to someone who is interested in starting one, whether it's a survivor or caregiver listening or maybe even a clinician listening? Yeah, you know, there there's usually a need. There's there's somebody else out there that is going through the same thing that you could really connect with. So whether you start at um, an organization that that already exists and you reach out and, and ask if there's an interest from any of their other clients or the support persons that are attending there that they might be able to connect you with just to establish that connection and find out what that need is. And even if it's a group of two and then it grows to a group of three, that's how some of ours have started where we didn't even initially identify that there's maybe a gap in the support that we offer for this next phase of treatment. Um, So if you're thinking it, there's often somebody else thinking of it. Mm -hmm. And then how you organize that group can really depend, like you mentioned, on where you live and how close you are to the other group members. Um, There's a lot of value in technology these days, which I'm not always privy to, but, um, you know, there can be a lot that's gained through online forums or, um, you know, talking over the phone, podcasts. There's, There's so much information that can be at your disposal, even if you're physically maybe more removed from a larger area with more of the support. So um, asking questions, they can connect you to the next person, to the next person, to the next person until you find others that, you know, you may um, be able to form that group with. And the meaning is not in the numbers or where you meet. It's in sharing that information, sharing those experiences, um, and connecting with other people. You know, it can normalize a lot of what you're going through and, can also encourage each other. You know, it it's difficult to sometimes take those steps in making changes or, you know, making that appointment to go see that psychologist or, um, you know, starting a, a physical exercise program um, yeah. and having somebody else kind of be your cheerleader or be that accountability piece can, can really be helpful. And I know another... Um, topic that you kind of wanted to talk about today too was um, you know support around adjusting from being inpatient to going home and back into the community um, you know um, what what are some of the the things that you work with a patient as they're about to transition yeah we have one of our groups here that's that was designed for that transition. Um, It's called Next Step, and it's basically clients that have shown some progression in their therapy and their rehabilitation program that may be transitioning back to work. Um, They may be transitioning back home. Um, They might be reducing their therapies because they've made progress, but in some way they're taking that next step um, in their recovery. And we needed something for them and it needed to be in the form of a support group and not necessarily individual therapies. So we have a group where there are different topics we go through about how you um, develop your social support network. Where do you find resources and what's the value in having that? There's a lot of different forms of support and it, it usually doesn't even cross our radar about different types of support, but some people might need information. Some people might might need social support. Some people might need um, accountability, or um, they might want to advocate, you know, for 
legal policies and coalitions. So um, looking at your support network and getting those people to rally around you for, for what you need, and it's different for everybody. And then kind of redefining your value and your goals, um, kind of short-term and long-term, but you know, what different hats did I wear before the injury and, and what am I doing now? And has my kind of self-image and my view changed? Do I value different things now? What's important to me? Um, and am I living that out in my life right now? Um, and then, you know, kind of setting up long-term goals and what does my future look like? What do I want to accomplish? What do I need to do to get there? Um, what barriers are there and how can I overcome those? And sharing information, sharing struggles and successes and ideas and coming from those who are going through that same thing, kind of walking in those steps alongside you in a, in a different way can be really powerful. So that's the goal of that group is really helping them to transition to that next step. And what about transitioning back to work? Because, you know, I know for many people going back to work can be really, really hard and frustrating yeah. because, you know, we no longer can maybe do what we used to do. Um, yeah. You know, so how, how do you address that in your groups? Yeah, there's, there's a kind of a cognitive component that we look at and then an emotional component. Not that they have to fit nicely in those two categories, but often those are kind of where those concerns go of how do I manage this neuro fatigue? Am I going to be able to make it all day? What do I do if I need more frequent breaks or if the noises or the lights are getting to me or I'm having trouble multitasking? So looking at the role um, that they're stepping back into in their work, if there are any modifications that they can ask for and that would be appropriate for their for their job. Um, sometimes having, you know, a small meeting or private conversations with your coworkers to explain what they're going what you're going through because they often don't know. You know, they see what's on the outside and they don't know all of the internal challenges that are going on. Right. Mm-hmm. Often for, for people, you know, longer term. So providing some of that education and saying, you know, um, if I need to talk with you, can you send me an email so I can set up a meeting and I can prepare and I have time to gather my thoughts and collect those thoughts and I will be more organized. It will be a more effective meeting if I have a little bit of um, notice ahead of time. Or, um, you know, repositioning yourself in a quieter area where the distractions are more minimal. You can maybe put a noise machine on and close your door um, sometimes depending on the work day, looking at um, setting aside a, a big chunk of time to work on one project before you switch to the next. Sometimes it's not possible, you know, in, in, in the type of work that you do, but if there are any modifications and you can speak with your supervisor or your HR director about anything that you think would make you more successful there, that's one of the first things. And then one of the other things is, is that emotional support. You know, it it is another change. You've been through a huge change already. Now you're going back to work and there's a lot of fear about whether you'll be able to continue doing that job. There's financial stress. If you've been on disability, has my insurance been cut off? Um, mm. um, and, and sometimes that anxiety and that depression. So sometimes, as we've talked about, PTSD can be there. So if they were in a car accident and now they're back to work and they have 
to drive their car, and they're not quite ready to do that. Um, some of those other things, um, you know, they need to tackle and feel like they're in a good place emotionally to kind of handle that flood that's going to come with going back to work, too. So there can be quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, people often want to get back to work, um, but they're not able, say, to work full time again or do the same job that they did before. And I know that that's, you know, it it's it's frustrating for a lot of people. And, you know, that, yeah, it can be really it's, challenging. It's a big part of, absolutely. It's a big part of their yeah. identity. And, and when you've had a head injury and that's already changed your view of yourself and then you've taken away maybe work and driving, um, you're feeling lost. And so that can reestablish some of that if you feel like you're ready to go back to work and you're able to and kind of get into your new normal, you know, of whatever that looks like for you um, or or trying something new um, that might better fit where you're at and some of your interests. Well, Dr. Lopez, we are almost out of time, and I want to make sure we covered everything that you had hoped to talk about. Is there anything? I think we... so. I, the only thing that I don't think I mentioned more, and I just want to underscore the importance of the caregiver and the family support. I know we didn't talk about that too much, but they're an important part of the process in that recovery Absolutely. and in our support groups. You know, they're welcome to attend. They get a lot out of seeing and hearing what other people are going through, and it helps them to understand that survivor more. And so that's just something else I wanted to to bring up because um, it, it does make a huge difference. So. Mm-hmm. I'm over here shaking my head. Yes. <laughs> you know, and, and it's so yeah. important for caregivers to have their own support system as well. Um, and, yeah. you know, it's, you know, and, and, and I know TBI survivors who are say a mom and so they're taking care mm-hmm. of small children themselves. Right. And so it's important uh-huh. To remember that you need to keep yourself full in order to help your family. And I know sometimes that can be really challenging for moms. Yes, it can be. But you're right. You have to fill yourself up before you have anything else to offer. So, yes. Well, thank you so much for being here today. This has just been a really wonderful conversation. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be here for our listeners. Oh, thank you so much, Amy. Thank you for having me and encouraging everyone to get the support they need. Well, thank you so much, and have just a wonderful day, Dr. Lopez. I appreciate you being here. Thank you, Amy. You too. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I really hope that today's episode um, gave you some good insights into getting support um, for yourself or if you're a clinician listening, how to help uh, one of your patients get support. Again, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zellmer. And also you can find all previous podcasts at facesoftbi.com. And just another big thank you to our sponsor, Midwest Functional Neurology, the concussion doctors you can trust in the Midwest. Find them online at mnfunctionalneurology.com. And again, thank you for listening and thank you for being a part of my journey. Have a great day, everyone, and I will see you next time.